Today we return to the Gospel of John. And we pick up in John chapter 2. I'll read the entire chapter. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty years, forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Last fall, uh, when we began the Gospel of John. Uh, we've, we took a hiatus because I was ill for a while and then I had a planned sabbatical, but now we're back after the holidays into John's Gospel. I'm very excited about it. You may remember last fall I had said that John wrote his Gospel about Jesus from a very personal vantage point, not only as one of the twelve of Jesus' apostles, but also, as he's described in this book, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, one of the most profound theological arguments 
I have ever heard came from all places uh, from my own grandmother. This was decades ago. I was in seminary and I went home to New York to visit my family. And as a seminarian, some of my relatives would come and ask me questions about, you know, theological issues, Bible issues, whatever. She had been reading her Bible lately and she came up to me and she said, Brian, Brian, I, I, I was reading in John. I know why we're not supposed to pray to Mary. The wedding, the wedding in Cana, she said. The wedding, they ran out of wine and Mary went to Jesus. She said, son, they have no wine. And Jesus said, ma, what do you want from me? You see, he, he, and she said this, I, I, word for word, she said this. You see, he wouldn't listen to her then. Why would he listen to her now? And I've never forgotten that. And despite how comical it is, it is profound. It's exactly right. Jesus doesn't conform to people's agendas. What do these two events in John chapter 2, a wedding and the Passover situation in the temple in Jerusalem, right? You got a wedding at Cana and then you have the Passover at the temple in Jerusalem. What do these two events have in common and why am I preaching on both of them in the same sermon? Because they're both feasts. One's a wedding feast and one is the Passover feast. And here's what they have in common. During both feasts, Jesus sets the tone for what his earthly ministry was going to be like. That's what John is doing here in chapter 2. Jesus would follow God, his Father's lead in all things, and he would not conform to people's agendas and expectations for him. God's ways are not our ways. And so we have to adjust our agendas to his and that's going to help you live in a world where your agenda is being interrupted all the time, right? And it's going to help you live in a world where other people impose their agendas, their expectations, their wishes on you, right? Jesus responded to people in some interesting ways. And what we're going to look at today is how he responded to the agendas of the people around him how he responds to your agenda, to my agenda, to our agendas, and how Jesus responded to the agenda of God in heaven, his Father. How Jesus responded to his contemporaries, how Jesus responds to you and to me, and how Jesus responded to his heavenly Father's agenda. Now, Jesus' response to people varied in, in, in the approach. His responses to different people and different crowds of people varied, and yet they were consistent in purpose. Different types of responses from time to time, but always the same purpose. And you see it in John chapter 2, you see three types of responses. Jesus responds to one group of people with reluctance, to another group of people with zeal, and to a third group of people with discernment. Reluctance, zeal, and discernment. To his mother Mary at the wedding in Cana, Mary had an agenda when she came to him. Jesus responds reluctantly. You see some reluctance in him. He responds, but not, not as she wishes, right? 
Now, Mary, by this time, was most likely a widow. And in a very mother-like fashion, this widow leans on her eldest son, who's quite a remarkable son. She leans on Jesus at the feast to do something, right? And Jesus' response, uh, it, sets us a, it sets us back a little bit. It puts us on our heels a bit. Verse 4, he says to her, Woman, uh, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, his remark to her as woman, that was not a disrespectful thing to say in that context, but it is distancing, right? You see Jesus publicly distancing himself from his mother. He's responding to her not as her son. He's responding to her demands as the Messiah, right? This isn't just, you know, Junior talking. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ speaking to Mary. As the Christ, his reluctance to listen to mom reveals a higher purpose. Now, to a different group of people, to the temple religious establishment in Jerusalem, in the next scene, Jesus responds with zeal, zealously. The same Jesus who only let the servants at the wedding see that miracle of turning water into wine at the temple in Jerusalem, he causes a complete ruckus that's in public for everybody to see, right? He was so upset about what the establishment was doing. The money changers that they had made, they had turned the, the court of the Gentiles, which was meant for Gentiles to come to see the glory of the Lord, and, and they turned it into a business venture. And he was outraged by that, wasn't he? And he, and he says, uh, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, right? He's, he's saying, how dare you take this place, the court of the Gentiles, that's meant for people to come from the nations and see the glory of God and hear his truth and witness these wonders. And, and how dare you take this away from them and turn it into a money-making venture? And later on, his disciples would remember Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. So again, Jesus' consistent purpose behind both his reluctance at the wedding in Cana and his zeal with the temple establishment. A consistent purpose, though different responses, and the consistent purpose, purpose was this. He had a guiding passion to do the will of his heavenly Father, to follow his Father's agenda, not Mary's, and no one else's. But a third group of people, the crowds at the Passover feast, believed in his signs. But to them, Jesus responds, not zealously, not, not reluctantly. John tells us he responded discerningly to the people who were impressed by his miracles. If you look at verses 24 and 25, John tells us Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It makes me think of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Jesse had an agenda for which one of his sons would become the next king. Even Samuel the prophet may have had an agenda, and they, they were surprised when God picked the last son, the youngest son, maybe the smallest and the least likely. And the Lord in that moment told Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks on the heart. 
And this is how Jesus is showing his divine qualities, right? He doesn't, he knows their heart and he doesn't give weight to the praises of people who are impressed by his miracles. He doesn't invest his hopes in them. He's not riding a movement here. He's not riding the wave of politics or religion or social media or, 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 or any type of a movement that our religious leaders, our politicians, our celebrities, you and I would follow. He is not entrusting his hopes and his success in the opinions and the praises of the crowds. He responds to them with discernment. He doesn't give his heart to them. So you see a varied pattern of responses, reluctance, zeal, and discernment in Jesus for one common purpose, doing the will of his Father. That's the one agenda that he cared about the most. So Jesus' commitment to his Father, it provoked different responses in people, right? His, his different responses provoked different responses. Some people responded to him in opposition, and some people responded in faith. We see in John chapter 2, verses 11 and 22, that his disciples, and even Mary, believed in him. Why? Because he gave in to them? Because he gave in to their wishes and expectations? Because he met their demands for him? Not at all. In many ways, he denied their demands for him. They put their faith in him because Jesus did the will of his Father. He wouldn't bend or buckle. He was committed to the agenda of his heavenly father. And that's why some people put their faith in him. Now, I will put it to you that Jesus still to this day responds to people in the very same ways. Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, in the world and indwelling every follower of Christ, Jesus responds to your agenda according to God's will, not yours. Sometimes Jesus almost seems reluctant with your requests, right? It's almost like he's biding his time and he's making you wait. And maybe you're confused. Sometimes Jesus responds with zeal. It's intense. It's abrupt. It's direct. It hits you in the eye, between the eyes. And sometimes, actually all the time, whether his response is mm, reluctant or whether it's immediate, always it's discerning. He knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows why you're asking him what you're asking him in ways that you don't even comprehend yourself. Like Mary, you may come to God with an anxious request to fix a problem that you or the people around you have. Right? You, you say, Lord, this is going to be an embarrassment. So I need you to do something quickly, please. And many times God will work with your nearsighted request, but, but he'll do it for his purposes, not for yours. And that's when you begin to learn to trust him instead of coerce him. Or, or like those unlawfully inappropriate finance enterprisers and entrepreneurs around the temple courts during the Jerusalem Passover. Uh, sometimes you arrange your life in such a way that is incompatible with God's truth and his light being apparent in your life through you and around you. 
And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He quickly and abruptly, with force, rearranges the furniture. He won't have any of it. He's going to do something about it quickly and immediately. Sometimes, like those uh, miracle chasers who are, who are impressed by Jesus, those people who are, are looking for a religious experience, an existential moment, or, or who are trying to be good people, who are trying to be good, who are trying to be better at religion than everybody else, Jesus knows your heart. Jesus is not fooled by appearances. Jesus knows the motives for the good things that you do. And Jesus won't be impressed with your actions. He's not going to reward your surface religion or your, your, your self-seeking good deeds. No matter what other people think about them, he's not impressed with what impresses other people. No matter how great, no matter how good the cause may seem, Jesus knows your heart. Jesus' spirit in you is committed to the agenda of God for you. Jesus' spirit in this world is committed to God's purposes for this world. So our response to that is to reprioritize. Change your priorities. Reprioritize your life from a human-centric agenda to a God-centered agenda. I want you to, let's make this practical. I want you to think about one issue or one need or one person in your life right now for which you have an agenda, right? You know what you want, or you know how you want that person to respond or act. or You, you know what you want to hear them say, or you know how you want a conflict to resolve, or how you want a situation to end, or you, you know how you want a venture or a project to develop, right? Okay, think of a person or a need or a situation. Think about it. And now what I want you to do today or this week is write it down with a pen or, or type it out, but write down a description of that situation in prayer to God. Write down in detailed description how you want to see that situation pan out or resolve. Write it down and talk to God about it. Then, also in writing, I want you to ask God to help you reprioritize your thinking about that situation, about that need, about that person or conflict. Like Mary, we need to learn how to pivot. Remember what Mary did at the wedding? She came to her son saying, I need you to do something for me. But her response to him was what? She said to the servants, do whatever he asks you to do. She pivots really quickly, some scholars point out. And that's what we need to do. We need, we need that transformation from approaching God with a, here's what I need you to do for me attitude to a, God, do whatever you think is best. Reprioritize. Jesus Christ was wholeheartedly committed to God's will. We are not. I have, I've thought about it. Yeah, I have entrusted my safety, my happiness, my identity, and my worth, and the people close to me. I've entrusted my very life to so many people, and some quite wonderful folks, but no one deserving of my faith, of my utmost devotion, 
Do you want to follow Jesus Christ? Be prepared for confusion. You want to follow Jesus? Get used to frustration unless you are willing to surrender your agenda to his. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me rephrase that for our purposes today. Paul wrote, do not be conformed to your own agenda and to the agendas that other people place upon you, but reprioritize by the renewal of your mind. That's how you're going to know what God's will is. We see here from this concept that Paul offers of what transformation is, um, it, it's, it's another word that New Testament authors and Paul used for that, that, that transformation by the renewal of your mind is repentance. It's change. It's lasting change. And what we discover here in Romans 12 is that change isn't just behaving differently. Change is thinking differently. Change comes by reprioritizing your life. Of course your behaviors aren't going to change if your priorities haven't changed. Of course our agendas will not change if our priorities don't. And that is sin, the Bible tells us. This idea that we can play God with our own lives, or we can let other people play God with our lives. And the only remedy from that sin is to put our trust in a man who was all about God's agenda. We see in these early accounts in John chapter 2 of two feasts, a wedding feast and a Passover feast, we see how Jesus would respond to the demands and expectations and burdens placed upon him by all types of people, his own mother, his siblings, his friends, his disciples, his enemies, the Romans, the Jewish establishment, beggars, blind people, those who were lame. Everybody put agendas and expectations and burdens on Jesus, and we see in John chapter 2 how he would respond to them all. He sets the tone right here. He would only do and say the will of his Father in heaven. In verses 18 and 19, we're told the Jews, uh, and, and this, this wasn't all the Jews, uh, but probably the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They wanted to know why Jesus caused such a ruckus in the temple. And they said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who gives you the authority? Are you a prophet? You know. And, and Jesus responds to them by saying, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. You see, he would show them a sign of his authority. They were going to have to wait for it, though. Almost three years. Alicia Myers in her commentary writes, His hour will indeed come, and it will involve his mother, wine, and water. But it cannot be rushed. Jesus did not act immediately, and as he was expected to. Jesus waited. He waited and waited. 
to be crucified and then to rise from the dead. He even waited to rise from the dead three days. And although Jesus never entrusted himself to the fickle wishes and, and opinions of the crowds who were most impressed by him, D.A. Carson said that Jesus does entrust himself to anyone who believes in him. Jesus is all yours. He gave his life for you. He's coming back for you. He is all yours. He has entrusted himself to you. Will you entrust yourself to him? Jesus is all yours. Are you all his? God's agendas are not our agendas. God's ways are not our ways, and we must adjust our agendas to his. We must reprioritize. And the more you entrust yourself to Jesus, again, think of that person, or think of that need, or think of that situation, and you know exactly how you want it to go. You know your agenda backward and forward, right? But the more you entrust yourself to Jesus, the more his signs will make sense to you, whether it's turning water into wine, whether it's being crucified for your sins and rising from the dead for your vindication, or whether it's how he's going to work out that need you have or that situation you want resolved, or that person that you can't control or who wants to control you. Entrust yourself to him, and his signs will make more sense to you, and you will be drawn by those signs nearer to the heart of God. And as you are drawn nearer to the heart of God, God's priorities become yours because they now make sense to you. And once God's priorities become your priorities, then you won't despair. You won't explode when your agendas get interrupted. And you won't fear. You won't buckle. You won't break under the pressure of the demands that other people have placed upon you. Entrust yourself to him. He has given himself to you. And I'm excited to follow Jesus through the Gospel of John as we move into 2022. Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you for your Son, Jesus the Christ, not simply Mary's Son, but your Son. Not simply the disciples' Lord, but our Lord. Not simply a prophet and a teacher and a miracle worker, but your Son. God incarnate, who has come to rescue us from the demands that the law we cannot keep has put on us, for the demands that sin and death have placed on us that we cannot escape, from the demands of the people in this world and in our lives who we cannot please, from the demands that we place on ourselves that we cannot forgive ourselves for, or live up to. Thank you that Jesus entrusted himself fully to you. We now entrust ourselves to him that his will may be done in our lives and not our own. In his name, amen.